Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. All right, we're back, everybody. Again, I just did a show, I don't know, 24 hours ago, but I thought I'd do another one. Had some time on my hands, so I figured I'd work on one. Got a few stories today, not very many, only eight. And I might as well get started. One, two, three. Well, let me see where they're from. We got two from Saudi Arabia, one from Egypt, so three from the Middle East, two from Poland, one domestic, uh, one from UK, one from Australia. We'll start with the domestic one first, and this is a Spacecom story. Of course, Space Command is uh, one of the 11 combatant commands that the United States has. Uh, the others are Africa Command, Central Command, Cyber Command, European Command, Indo-Pacific Command, Northern Command, Southern Command, SOCOM, Special Operations Command, Strategic Command, Transportation Command, and of course, the 11th is Space Command. And this story is about a basing trying to, in a one over the world, so to speak, it was decided that they were going to reactivate Space Command. They had temporary headquarters out in Colorado. I think Peterson Air Force Base or Space Force Base or whatever they call it. And then they did a study and they decided, it was decided to put it in Huntsville, Redstone Arsenal, uh, Space Com. And then some things happened. This happened. It wasn't done right. It was done right. There was an investigation, and finally, the Biden administration said, now we're going to put it, in, we're going to keep it in Colorado. And then now people have cried foul at that, so this is what the story's about. It's 28 September, Courtney Albon, Defense News, Rogers calls for Pentagon IG probe of Space Command basing. And before we get uh, into the story, I, this is why we just can't get stuff done, right? here. Stuff like this, it's frustrating. Just to read this article is frustrating. So the chairman of the House Armed Service Committee said he'll seek a Department of Defense Inspector General investigation into the decision to base U.S. Space Command headquarters in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I mean, not really a bad spot to put it. That's not in the article. That's just me. But you'll see as we get through. During a 28 September committee hearing about the Space Command basing decision, Chairman Mike Rogers from Alabama, by the way, where Redstone is, said he will continue to push for legislation that restricts military construction funding from being used to build a permanent headquarters at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado, which is in Colorado Springs. Also, Fort Carson is there, and the Air Force Academy is there. It's a nice town. Here's a quote from the senator, or I'm sorry, from the chairman. Uh, Congress gets to decide what we're going to authorize, and what we're going to pay for. It's my intent to make sure the competition results are honored and the permanent basing headquarters is authorized and funded to be constructed in Huntsville, Alabama, which is Redstone Arsenal. That's what this chairman said, who's from Alabama, by the way, like I said before. Uh, the potential inspector general investigation and proposal to pause work to establish a permanent Colorado headquarters follows a four-year effort to identify a home for Space Command. 
Since its reestablishment in 2019, the department's newest combatant command, the 11th, like I just said, has been temporarily based in Colorado Springs. In 2021, just as just as former President Donald Trump was leaving office, the White House announced Huntsville as pick for organizational headquarters. The, that decision sparked pushback from Colorado lawmakers, obviously, largely led by Representative Doug Lamborn, who called Air Force selection fundamentally flawed. Lamborn requested a governmental accountability office review of the decision and the DOD Inspector General investigation. Both inquiries determined that the basing progress lacked transparency and credibility. However, the Air Force followed the law in choosing Alabama. I don't know what that means. Uh, they lack transparency, transparency and credibility, but they followed the law. So anyway, despite the conclusion of the watchdog investigation, the White House announced on 31 July of this year that it had abandoned the Trump administration's previous decision and that the Space Command would remain in Colorado in order to maintain peak readiness. Rogers, as leader of the Influential House Committee, and immediately launched his own congressional investigation, threatened to subpoena DOD officials for documents, and called for another GAO review of the Air Force basing process. A uh, little bit more. Department of Defense officials testified before a hearing that the decision to keep the command in Colorado Springs is tied to operational readiness concerns. Uh, the Air Force Secretary, Frank Kendall, who took office in July of 21, led a reevaluation re of the Trump admin's basing analysis that focused on the facility, facility's needs and workforce requirements. He told lawmakers that the results were consistent with the previous basing process, identifying Huntsville as the most affordable location and highlighting Colorado Springs as a site with the lowest operational risk. While Kendall thought the potential there were potential mitigations to operational risks, he said the Space Command Commander General James Dickinson assessed those considerations quite differently, which drove the White House's final decision. So it seems like the Secretary of the Air Force said we could move it to Huntsville, we could mitigate the risk of operational readiness of keeping it in Colorado, but the Space Force Commander, James Dickinson, who I think was an Army guy, he said the risk was too much, and he recommends keeping it in Colorado. That's what I took from that paragraph. Uh, here's another statement from Kendall. He said the decision came down to judgment about operational risk associated with relocation, relocating versus reduced cost of the leading alternative of Huntsville, Kendall said. I fully support the president's judgment in this matter, given the intensifying threat, and now the final decision we are prepared to move forward with the implementation based on the spacing decision. Uh, General Dickinson said during, his, during the hearing that keeping Space Command in Colorado will allow the organization to maintain mission readiness and retain civilian personnel, which makes up 60% of the workforce. Uh, if the headquarters was to move south to Huntsville, the command estimates that 88% of those civilians would opt not to move. And then, of course, uh, Representative Terry Sewell from Alabama uh, said that pushed back on that claim, saying that locating Space Command headquarters to Huntsville would impose risk to its mission. The able and ready workforce that's in Huntsville could more than accommodate the operational readiness, she said. So I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Chairman of the Senate Service Committee wants another investigation. I guess both towns would be good, but bottom line, this is why you can't get anything done, right?
So that's it. Next UK story. It's like a, uh, an AUKUS type story. Start toward the top. Stand by and I'll pull it up. This is from Andrew Chudder, uh, Defense News 2 October. I think he's on the London beat. Britain pumps nearly $5 billion U.S. dollars in the future AUKUS submarine pipeline. The British government com- uh, committed nearly four billion pounds, or four point nine billion U.S. dollars, to the next phase in the development of the nuclear-powered submarines as part of the tri-national AUKUS program, which of course is UK, United States, and Australia. BAE, BAE Systems, Babcock Marine, and Rolls-Royce received contracts with that combined total sum, which is four billion pounds with work aimed at developing a nuclear attack submarine for Britain and Australia. Design, prototyping, and purchase of key long-lead items for the first UK submarines set for delivery in the late 2030s are covered by the investment. And that's from the the new British Defense Secretary, Grant Shapps. I think he's the guy that said they're going to put UK troops in uh, Ukraine to train soldiers. And then all of a sudden, they've kind of walked that back. Uh... That's him. Anyway, Grant Chaps. Chaps. BAE said in a statement that funding will cover development work up to 2028, and that funding will start to procure long lead items. Australia announced in March it would partner with the British in designing and building a submarine known as SSN AUKUS. The boat will incorporate Australian, British, and U.S. technologies. Primarily, the AUKUS deal, which was agreed upon in 2021, covers submarine construction, basing, and operation. The first SSN AUKUS boats will be built at BAE's Barrow and Furnace, Northwest England. I guess there's a shipyard there as a replacement for the Royal Navy's astute class attack submarine starting in the late 2030s. So wherever Barrow and Furnace is, Northwest England. BAE said the new contract with the MOD also includes significant infrastructure investment in this Barrow shipyard. Investment in the supply chain and a recruitment of more than 5,000 people. That's good news. Australian-built boats will follow first deliveries to the British with the first platforms from a site near Adelaide scheduled for handover in the 2040s. The conventionally armed British and Australian boats will both use nuclear power plants built in the UK by Rolls-Royce, although elements of the propulsion system will come from the United States. Here's a quote from Mr. Shapps. This multi-pound investment in AUKUS submarine program will help deliver the long-term hunter-killer submarine capabilities the UK needs to maintain our strategic advantage and secure our leading place in the contested global order. Mm. Up to five Virginia-class boats are slated for purchase from the United States with deliveries in the 2030s, allowing Australians to get grips with the operation of the first nuclear-powered submarines ahead of the SSN AUKUS. That's from Andrew Chudder, Defense News. Next, we'll go to Australia. For This is a very nice story from USNI. Australian Army shifting priorities to amphibious littoral operations. Aaron Lariosa, 2 October. It's kind of odd. You got a... Uh, shows you what USNI can do. It's a, it's a naval site. They do a lot of U.S. Navy and Marine stories. But here's a really good Australian story. So if you want to know what's going on out in the Pacific, uh, naval-wise, marine-wise, or even Australian-wise, check out USNI. I'm fixing to go into it. Let me drink some water 
Pardon me if I make noise. Sorry about that. All right, here we go. This is uh, 2 October. Really good article here. I think I used most of the article. Uh, the Australian Army is slated to shift its focus to the littorals after announcing last week several major changes, which include redeploying a sizable portion of soldiers and equipment across the country and optimizing several brigades for littoral and amphibious missions. Uh, here's a statement from the Acting Chief of Army, Major General Richard Vag, V-A-G-G. These changes will deliver world-class, relevant, incredible combat capabilities that are focused and optimized for operating in the littoral environments of our region on land, at sea, and in the air. The Australian Department of Defense announced these changes in response to the 2023 Defense Strategic Review. Uh, the review found that Australia's Defense Force current structure and capabilities were not fully fit for addressing the nation's security concerns. Uh, the DSR, as it's known, Defense Security Review, I'm sorry, Defense Strategic Review, recommended to be optimized for littoral operations in our northern land and maritime spaces and provide a long-range strike capability. Aside from reducing the procurement of infantry fighting vehicles and self-propelled howitzers, some of the top recommendations for the Australian Army were to speed up procurement and increase the quantity of HIMARS, land-based maritime strike systems, and amphibious vessels. Now, what does that sound like to you? Sounds like Force Design 2030 to me for the Marines. But anyway, and this is what's interesting, this next two paragraphs. Last week's announcement highlighted significant changes to the mission sets of the 1st, 7th, and 3rd multi-role combat brigades, which will become more specialized. And this is me talking here, not that article. Which will become more specialized. I love that, that sentence right there. I, I, I'm a big fan of specialization. I think you do need... I think brigade is a right size unit, maybe even division, but I think you need brigades that are specialized. And it looks like the Australians are doing that with these amphibious brigades or littoral brigades. Uh, the Marines are doing it with their regiments, right? But I think brigades are right sized to do that. I think the U.S. Army should do that. I think there should be a, I'm not going to go off on a, a freaking tangent here, but there should be like a mount brigade, uh, an urban operations brigade. Maybe surrounded by, you know, with strikers, right? And that's all they do. That's your urban, that's your urban fighting brigade. So I'm a big fan of, long story short, I'm a big fan of specialization. I like what the Australians are doing here. Uh, back to the article. So I'll read that, that, that paragraph again so I can get you back on track. Last week, the announcement highlighted significant changes to the mission sets to the 1st, 7th, and multi, 1st, 7th, and 3rd multi-role combat brigades, which will become more specialized. Uh, here's how they're going to do it. The first brigade will be transformed into a light combat brigade, which will allow it to be light, agile, and quick to deploy in a littoral environment and support long-range fires. While the Australian has ordered HIMARS, the Australian Army is looking to procure a land-based maritime strike capability. Contenders for the program include Strike Master, a naval strike missile, an armed Bushmaster, similar concept to the U.S. Marine Corps Nemesis, and long-range anti-ship missiles, surface launch from HIMARS, again, like Force Design 2030. So that's for the 1st Brigade. They're going to be a light brigade. 
And any time you have a light brigade, this is me talking about the article, they can do about anything you want. I mean, look at 10th Mountain Division up at Fort Drum. Those cats can go anywhere. All they have is a rifle, a rucksack, and a duffel bag. I mean, they don't have the best mobility, let's be honest, but they can do stuff like they're wanting them to do here. Okay, now back to the article. So that's the 1st Brigade. The 7th and 3rd Brigades will become motorized and armored combat brigades, respectively. So 7th Brigade will become motorized. 3rd Brigade will become armored. However, like the 1st Brigade, the two will also focus on littoral amphibious operations. To address these littoral missions, brand new littoral lift groups are also slated to be created, created and co-located with the brigades in their respective basing locations. Littoral lift groups will host Army littoral maneuver vessels, both including landing craft, medium, and heavy. Uh, at the moment, the 2nd Battalion Royal Australian Regiment is, the, is Australia's premier and only amphibious-focused unit. With the changes announced last week, all three, uh, all three of the Australian active brigades will have either littoral or amphibious focuses. Uh, and here's a quote from Richard Marlis, who's Australian Minister for Defense. He said, our army has always played a vital role in the defense of our nation and will continue to do so as it adapts to the challenges of our times. Hmm, they only got three brigades in the Australian Army active. Uh, the first, the third, and the seventh, right? Okay, moving on. Uh, last, last sentence. Uh, these changes will come amid Canberra's increased focus on defense and cooperation in the face of a changing security environment around the Australian, around Australia and across the Indo-Pacific. That's a good story right there. Check mark that. Done. All right, next two, next three actually will be from the CENTCOM AOR. In the Middle East, the first one's from Egypt, and then two from Saudi Arabia, then two from Poland, and then I think that'll be it. Uh, Egypt. Kind of a, here we go. This is from Breaking Defense, Agnes Halu, 2 October. Key Democrats threaten to cut military aid to Egypt. I mean, this has been a trend. The last couple of episodes I've done of been real political and I generally like I don't like doing those type stories but uh, we'll drive on uh, key Democrats threatened to cut military aid to Egypt Agnes Halu breaking defense to October two weeks after the United States State Department shifted 85 million in military away from Egypt US legislators are threatening to cut aid altogether as concerned over human rights in the North African country uh, this guy, Senator Ben Cardin, a Maryland Democrat who just last week took over chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is threatening to block military aid and arms sales to Egypt if it does not take concrete steps to improve human rights in the country. Uh, that's a report from Reuters on 30 September. I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about, but uh, I'll move on with the article. His comments follow a similar threat from Representative Gregory Meeks from New York, the top Democrat on the House Foreign Relations Committee, who said he is pushing the Biden administration to withhold $320 million in military aid for Egypt. If the Democrats are able to follow through on their threats, it will put the Egyptian authorities in a bind to either attempt to address the human rights concerns or look elsewhere for some or all of the $1.3 billion in annual military funding it currently receives from Washington. $1.3 billion annual from 
United States to Egypt. Uh, this is not the first time human rights stand as an obstacle in front of Egypt's military aid. In October of 20, 2022, Patrick Leahy from Vermont blocked a $75 million in military aid to Cairo for over human rights concerns and the holding of political prison, prisoners. Egypt has been awarded a number of considerable military deals from the United States in the last few years. In 2022, January of 2022, the United States State Department cleared a remarkable 2.5 billion possible military sale for Egypt to procure 12 Super Hercules C-130 aircraft and air defense radar systems. In May of 22, Egypt was awarded a contract to procure 23 CH-47F Chinook helicopters worth 2.6 billion. And earlier, President Trump's admin cleared a $2.3 billion deal to refurbish 43 Apache helicopters to Cairo. Uh, If the United States cuts military aid to Egypt, it's possible that Cairo could look elsewhere for support. Egypt has been looking at different sources of armaments for some time now and has signed a $1.7 billion deal in 2022 to procure K-9 self-propelled howitzers from South Korea. China has also been negotiating with Egypt for possible military sales, but no deal has yet to materialize. Um, A couple of experts weigh in on this. Uh, U.S.-Egypt relations have remained tense for for nearly a decade. With recent comments regarding U.S. military aid following a similar pattern. And here's this expert, Mohammed Solomon, who's a... uh, a director at some Mid- Middle East Institute, he says, I don't believe Egypt will fully shift to Russia and China. Uh, the reason is, is most of their stuff that uh, Egypt has is uh, Western origin defense systems. And what it does have from the Russian defense systems is outdated. So Cairo is unlikely to align itself more closely to one camp to another. With a, prefer- with a preference for Washington due to structural reasons and the deep-rooted nature of the relationship. So this expert says that this b- bump in the road between the United States and Egypt is probably going to go away. Maybe it'll turn to South Korea, but probably won't do any serious business with Russia or China because that's just the way it is. Uh, I'll stop right there on that. Uh, two Saudi Arabia stories. One's an FMS, for military sale. I usually do these first, but... I'll do it now. So U.S. approves $500 million sale for Saudi Arabia's combat vehicle upkeep. This is from 22 September, an older story. The United States State Department has approved a possible sale to replenish Saudi Arabia's stocks of spare parts and repair parts for the country's fleet of combat vehicles. Estimated price is $500 million. Uh, the Gulf country requested to purchase repair parts to sustain the Royal Saudi Land Forces fleet of Abrams tanks, M60 tanks. Wow. Bradley fighting vehicles, mortar carriers, mine-resistant, ambush-protected vehicles, also known as MRAPs, light-armored vehicles, howitzers, night vision devices, and radar sets. Uh, The proposed sale will be carried out through an existing cooperative logistics supply support arrangement program, which Saudi Arabia has participated in since 1965. In 2016, Riyadh requested to buy up to 153 M1 A1-A2 tanks for conversion to 133 M1-A2 Saudi Abrams configured main battle tanks as part of a $1.2 billion deal. 
At the time, the Pentagon announcement stated that 20 of these were for newly purchased as battle damage replacements for the country's existing fleet. That's for that. That's why this one, 153 to 133. Uh, the Saudi military is believed to have lost these Abram tanks in Yemen while fighting Iran-backed Houthi rebel forces. I never really heard about that. Those Houthis must be tough if they knocked out 20 Abrams tanks. Uh, I'll stop right there. Uh, the next Saudi Arabia story, this is kind of a kind of a long one. Basically, Saudi Arabia wants a nuclear weapon. <laughs> I mean, that's it. That's the story. Uh, no, here it is from Breaking the Fence, October 2. And nuclear push, Saudi Arabia could play U.S. and China off each other. Saudi Arabia is making a push for a nuclear power as part of any U.S. broker pact with Israel. So, of course... Kind of a backstory. I've read the article. I'm going to kind of explain it real quick. Um, bottom line is Saudi Arabia wants a nuclear program, maybe a nuclear weapon. The Biden administration wants Saudi Arabia and Israel to normalize relations. And I think Saudi Arabia is going to use that normalization with Israel. Uh, in return for that, they're going to want a nuclear they're going to want a nuclear program and they're going to want the United States to help sponsor it and help them get it. And that's going to be their price to normalize relations with Israel. I think that's the gist of the article. And plus, Iran has a nuclear program and is and Saudi Arabia wants one, too, to keep up with Iran. That's the bottom line. So here we go. With Saudi Arabia making clear its desire for it to be a nuclear power, the Middle East could find itself on the edge of a potential nuclear arms race. This article is from Riyadh. I can't say his name, sir. Sorry. Uh, it's an Arabic name. So right now, the kingdom is nowhere near having an operative nuclear program, but the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, raised eyebrows in late September when he said that if Iran were to have a nuclear weapon, we will have one too, basically. That Saudi Arabia will get one. The timing of his statement was noteworthy for many analysts who believe it reflected a growing concern of the advancement of the Iranian nuclear program and to, and to capitalize on the push by Washington and Tel Aviv to normalize relations with Riyadh by making the establishment of a Saudi nuclear program with full fuel cycle as a conditional step. That's just what I told you. The Saudis want, want a nuclear program, and they're going to use that to normalize relations with Tel Aviv, I suppose. Uh, the Saudis do not have a current nuclear program. They do have a reactor that uh, remains dormant. It's a research reactor. Uh, for Saudi Arabia, establishing an advanced nuclear program is a strategic objective to bolster its status as an Arab and Muslim power and achieve a power balance with Iran. Earlier this year, Saudi officials announced that significant amounts of uranium were discovered in the kingdom and they established and they intend to establish a fuel cycle. Uh, September 25th, the kingdom alerted the International Atomic Energy Watchdog, IAEA, that has accepted its demands for comprehensive safeguards, which indicate Saudi Arabia's readiness to advance its nuclear program. Um, here's an expert saying that Saudi Arabia possesses, possesses uranium reserves, and therefore it has a right to have a uranium enrichment capability that fulfills the requirement for a peaceful nuclear program for the kingdom. And given the MBS statement, there seems little doubt among experts that given a civil, civil, civil 
nuclear program, the kingdom could seriously consider nuclear weapons. The first step that the Saudis are seeking is to leverage the Israeli talks that the U.S. have jump-started, and they want to uh, develop a domestic nuclear program with the same capabilities that the West has granted to Iran under the 2015 agreement, namely to mine and enrich uranium, albeit with limits and outside monitoring. So they want the same deal that the 2015 deal that Iran got from the West. They, the Saudis, want U.S. support to enrich uranium with the option to develop a nuclear weapon if they need to later on. MBS has put a heavy price tag on the normalization with Israel, including the capability for domestic enrichment. The Biden administration very wants to get the Saudi-Israel deal done in order to give the president a foreign policy win heading to the 24 elections. But the nuclear issue could be just one of many sticking points, including pushing the security agreement through the U.S. Congress. And here's another expert saying, I don't think the KSA-Israeli normalization is imminent because even if Saudi Arabia manages to get approval from the U.S. Congress, which is almost impossible, and secure advanced weapons like F-35 jets, there's no way Israel would agree with Saudi Arabia to enrich uranium in exchange for normalization. And if that's the case, it's possible the Saudis will try to pressure the United States by bringing others into the competition, meaning China. Uh, if MBS and the Biden administration fail to reach an agreement on nuclear limits and security commitments, then Saudi Arabia will likely turn to other partners, notably Russia and China, for help in building the capabilities it needs to restore the balance of power with Iran. The China National Nuclear Corporation has reportedly submitted this year a bid to build nuclear power plants in Saudi Arabia, a move seen by some observers as a message by the kingdom to the West that has other options to access nuclear technology. China has already helped Saudi Arabia build a ballistic missile program, a likely delivery vehicle for any possible nuclear warhead. And I'll probably stop right there. That's kind of, that's a heavy story right there. Anyway, they're trying to join the nuclear club. Uh, Poland, and then we're done. What am I doing on time? 30 minutes. A little bit longer than I wanted to go. But I told you we're going to do Poland stories, and darn it, we're going to do Poland stories. Uh, which one should we do first? Let's do U.S. gives $2 billion loan to Poland to help buy U.S.-made weapons. This is from Aaron Mehta, 25 September. Breaking defense, the Biden administration issued a $2 billion loan to Poland to help cover costs from Warsaw spending spree on new weapons. The money is allocated through the Foreign Military Financing Program, which stipulates the money has to be sent on U.S.-made weapons. That's $2 billion. But unlike traditional FMF dollars, these aren't grants. The loan comes with interest that has to be paid back to the U.S. government. Uh, the exact details of the loan, including the interest rate and time which Poland has, to, Poland has to pay it back, were not made public by the state. Warsaw has certainly not been shy about spending money on military modernization, in terms of what the FMF loan may go to, Poland has announced plans to buy Abrams tanks, Apache helicopters, Blackhawk helicopters, and high Mars rocket launchers. Earlier this month, Poland announced it would become the first international customer of the lower-tier air and missile defense sensor, along with the procurement of Patriot batteries. 
And even before the war in Ukraine began, Poland was willing to drop significant money on F-35 Joint Strike fighters. And I'll just stop right there. So $2 billion loan to Poland to buy U.S. weapons. You guys have probably heard that saying, like uh, some, some when it comes to politics, like international politics, some, some countries are playing checkers and some countries are playing chess. Well, the United States, it doesn't play either. It plays Monopoly, doesn't it? And I didn't come up with that. Somebody else came with that. But it's true. Uh, moving on, last story. Saab unveils Poland's first airborne early warning aircraft. From Joe Sabala Defense Post to October, Saab has officially presented the first airborne early warning aircraft under order by the government of Poland. In a ceremony attended by Polish and Swedish defense representatives, the company showcased its Saab 340 AEW equipped with the Erie radar system. I'm sorry, Erie I radar system. The milestone happened just two months after Warsaw placed an order for two airborne surveillance aircraft to bolster its national security. According to Saab, the production and presentation of the Polish aircraft was a result of efficient collaboration between the manufacturer and the Polish armed forces. I'd say so. Just two months, huh? Two months and you get two planes. The company also boasted the availability of its production line and in-house experts of airborne early warning solutions. And there's a quote from Saab, which I'm not going to go into. We know they're squared away. Originally developed for the Swedish Air Force, the Saab 340 AEW provides a detailed situational picture of surroundings. It utilizes an active electric electronically scanned array technology, which allows coverage of a wide area or focusing only on a smaller prioritized zone. The aircraft can fly at a max of 283 knots. Its effective surveillance range is 500,000 square miles. Does that sound right? No, 500,000 square kilometers. Still, that's 193,000 square miles horizontally. Man, I don't know about that. That sounds too good to be true. But that's what the article says. Moving on. According to Saab, different configurations of the Saab 340 AEW are currently reinforcing the territory integrity of nine countries making it the most widely used airborne surveillance system in the world. Getting back to that, it says it effectively it, its effective surveillance range is 500,000 square miles horizontally. That's big. Uh, am I done? I think I am. Yep, I'm done. So that's one, two, three, four. That's eight stories. Uh, what are we doing on time? 34 minutes. Wow. A little bit longer than I wanted to go. I wanted to stay under 30 minutes tonight, but those eight stories took a long time. I'm still thinking about that Saudi Arabia nuclear story. That's kind of a big deal. All right. I guess I'll stop the episode right there. Uh, I've got some work to do. I'll do a little bit of editing. I'll try to. Um, and then I'll write up the notes on it. So that's pretty much it. Episode 171 is in the books. Thank you very much for listening and good night.